Hello everyone, my name is Chris Bay and welcome to a very special episode of the podcast with the fourth official. Today's episode is an interview with former Rangers media man Andrew Dixon. Andrew, how are you doing? Welcome to the show and thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm good, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I think um, a lot of the listeners have been looking forward to this as well. Um, it's it's quite a it's quite a coup for the for for me uh, especially starting with with the fourth official a couple of weeks ago to get someone of your caliber on. So um, I have to thank you for that. Um, that's me love bombing you right away. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say no problem, but I hope I don't disappoint. No, I'm sure you won't. I'm sure you won't. Um, let's just get straight in, yeah, Andrew. Um, Basically, who is Andrew Dixon? Um, obviously, you've had many roles at Rangers, uh, or you had many roles at Rangers, sorry. Um, you were a reporter, a publications editor, and you ended up becoming the senior content producer. Um, before you joined Rangers, what was your background? Were you a fan of the club and the roles that obviously I just mentioned there? What did they actually entail? Yeah, I mean, currently I'm a, a journalist with um, 21 years experience almost, um, going back to when I was in my final year at uni, I was um, covering second and third division matches as they were back then uh, for the uh, the Sun in Glasgow, um, did that for two or three years, um, I'd managed to get work experience in the summer going into my final year at uni, um, and, and from there I'd started doing games for them quite regularly uh so from there right up to now where i'm i'm based down in london and i work for sky sports predominantly but also still do some work for rangers and uh, a little bit for uefa as well um my career in between has been pretty varied i think probably when i left university in 2002 i very much had a vision of being a, a newspaper journalist for 45 years and then retiring um, I think I lasted full time three years in newspapers and in all honesty I'd be surprised <clears throat> excuse me if I ever ended up in newspapers again I could be wrong with that uh, because as much as um, social media has risen up over the last 10 to 15 years and online content has become more and more important to, to people and that's uh, been used as a way for for people to consume their their news because of the immediacy of it all. Um, at the same time, you never know. Newspapers might come back around again. There might be some uh, fantastic thing happens with them in the future, and it makes them the the, the place to go. But yeah, my career, um, having envisaged this kind of big newspaper career and aiming to work for all the national papers, it, it didn't really work out that way. Uh, after a bit of time at the Sun, I had three years in Aberdeen working for the Press and Journal. Uh, up there and, and across in Inverness on occasion as well, um, which was really, really enjoyable. And then in 2007, I had the opportunity to um, interview for a, a job with the media team at Rangers. Um, I've got to be honest, I never really had it in my head that I would ever work for Rangers because back at that point, of course, you had Rangers News. And of course, um, I think uh, the kind of the sort of non-Satanta version of Rangers TV, where you had like Rangers World, which was a subscription yeah. service that, that, that people uh, obviously signed up to uh, through the club website, where it was just little kind of standalone bespoke interviews. Um, that was about as good as it got. And and that was at that point previously, a, a few years earlier, obviously you wouldn't have had that. So it had never really been on my radar to go and work for Rangers because I, as a journalist, apart from Rangers News, 
that's all there really was in a media sense with Rangers, um, unless you, you went into PR, and and that's not really something that has ever, um, although obviously PR and, and, and being a journalist or a reporter, producer, or whatever it is, um, clearly there are, are big links between the two, but they are different jobs. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I ended up at Rangers for seven years in the end. Um, Largely, it was enjoyable and good fun. Uh, clearly, as I'm sure we'll come on to, there were bits that were a bit more difficult. Um, and then in 2014, towards the end of 2014, I uh, took voluntary redundancy uh, from the club. Um, I had the opportunity to take it and I'd lost my dad three months earlier. A combination of that and what was going on at the club at that point, that, that was about two and a half years after the club had gone into administration. Um, I kind of felt I'd had enough and it was the right time to go. By then I'd been talking to Sky about the prospect of coming down to, to London to join their freelance pool. So I took redundancy when the opportunity was there. Uh, I think Derek Lambias had been brought into the club. God, uh, that's her name. Yeah, uh, and it was actually him that, that dealt with my um, redundancy, although I never met him, um, and it was all done extremely quickly. Um, it was one of those where the opportunity came up, and um, a colleague of mine was was taking redundancy as well. And although I, I had an agreement with the club where I could pursue it if I felt that I wanted to because of my personal circumstances with my dad, they'd been uh, very understanding of that. Uh, Rangers and I had the opportunity to perhaps take that if I'd wanted to but even with that I hadn't really given it much thought and then um, I'd made a couple of contacts at Sky um, I'd been encouraged to come down and see what it was all about down in London so I'd gone and, and done a couple of shadow days um, on, on days off from from my job at Rangers and over the course of time it felt increasingly like it was the right thing to do so uh, ultimately I ended up down in London in, uh, I think it was May 2015, that would be, yeah, that's right. Uh, and I've been here ever since, and I, I loved it. Um, I can't remember what the second part of your question was. Uh, uh, but... <laughs> well, I was, I was actually going to come back to it anyway, because yeah. you, you almost killed the, the interview straight away there, because I, I genuinely thought when you said that you never, envis you never envisaged obviously working for Rangers, I thought you were going to come out with something like, I've, I've been a lifelong Celtic fan. <laughs> I, was, I was like, that's it, the interview is over already. Um, it, it's basically, I was just, um, obviously, were you a Rangers fan before, obviously, in your childhood, growing up and stuff like that? Was, was it deemed to be, for you, when you got the job, a dream job for, for yourself? Um, yeah, a dream... Yes and no, because I hadn't dreamt of working for Rangers. I think as as a kid, I think most uh, most Rangers fans um, imagine playing for the club and probably have dreams about playing for the club. But I never dreamt of realistically working for the club because yeah. uh, while I was uh, a, a distinctly average at the absolute best centre half, and even then I, I think distinctly average would be generous, um, <laughs> I, I, I was realistic enough to know that I was never, ever going to get anywhere near uh, playing for Rangers. And the irony is that I have played on the pitch at Ibrooks quite a few times as a staff member uh, in end-of-season games. But, yeah, I mean, I very much uh, was a Rangers fan and I remain a Rangers fan as well. I have been, uh, I think I went to my first game when I was eight years old um, in the, the old main stand, uh, which would have been 1990, I think it was, a game against Infermline, 2-0, uh, I think David Dodds scored the second. Can't remember who got the first. It might have been Mo Johnson, but I could be wrong with that. Um, I, what I remember of it was sitting on the old wooden seats in the main stand. Um, I don't think the club deck 
was had been started yet. I think it was still the, the old main stand. But um, what, what I do recall is is loving the noise at, at the goals uh, when they were scored. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, it was something that stuck with me. It was my my uncle, my dad's brother John, who uh, who took me to games. Uh, he was actually he was a third Lanark fan originally, and then obviously they went uh, out of business in 1967. So. Um, I think as a lot of third Lanark fans did, their choices were Rangers, Celtic, uh, maybe Partick Thistle, Clyde or, or uh, Queen's Park, I guess. But um, the majority went to one half of the old firm or the other. So uh, my uncle uh, very much went for the, the Rangers side of things and uh, has, has never looked back and he got me involved. And, and as a kid, we... We went when we could. We never had season tickets, uh, but my uncle did his best to get me along Tybricks as soon as possible. I can remember uh, many a game uh, where we would go and sit in the Broomlone rear um, watching matches um, and, and some good ones as well. I remember being at the... I was at a 7-0 win. I don't think it was the one against Hibs, though, when Gascoigne got booked by the referee yeah. for showing the yellow card. I think it was a game against Dunfermline, but I, I seem to remember really enjoying that game, obviously, because we scored seven goals on that occasion. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we always had a bit of a routine. I would go over to my uh, my uncle's uh, house. I would get dropped off there about 1 o'clock. We'd have a rolling sausage or something like that, and then we'd, we'd drive over and park at the sports centre at Bell Houston around two and then wandered over Tybridge from there. So um, although we didn't have season tickets, it was, um, you know, maybe six, seven times a season we would manage to get tickets for games and go along. Um, on the, It's funny you say that about uh, on the Celtic thing. Uh, bizarrely, when I was working at Rangers, um, at the point where I'd kind of started to think that maybe it was a good time to, to leave the club, um, a recruitment agency contacted me and uh, said to me, we, we've got a job for you, which is, is very similar to, to what you do at the moment. And at that stage, I was I was presenting on Rangers TV and anchoring the live coverage of matches. And I said, all right, OK. And they said, yeah, you, you tick a lot of boxes for it. Um, it's uh, We think it'd be right up your street in terms of capability and all the rest of it. I said, right, OK. And I said, well, listen, they'll be open to most things. What is it? And they said, uh, yeah, it's the, it's the presenter at Celtic TV. <laughs> which... Um, and, and and clearly the girl who I was speaking to was not into football because um, I think the sort of the stunned silence that she got for a few seconds I think she sort of asked if I was still there. <laughs> I kind of, sort of started laughing. I said, "Look, um, thanks for that." You're, you're you're to blame um, for landing Celtic fans with Jerry McCulloch. Then that's interesting. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's probably not far off. Uh, Jerry going to Celtic. I think it was probably before. Yeah, it would have been quite close. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I seem to remember there was a guy called Kenny Mackay who hosted on Celtic TV a um, good number of years ago now. A uh, really nice guy, Kenny. Actually, I kind of met him a couple of times before he worked at Celtic. Because uh, I think prior to that he'd been at STV. I think it might have been to replace him when he left. Right. Uh, don't think it was uh, Jerry then ended up going there, but I could be wrong with that. Maybe. Yeah, maybe it was my fault. Um, so. <laughs> Although, although many people will argue that Celtic TV is a good place for Jeremy McCall. Well, well, no comment on that. Um, <laughs> you, you said you said a, an interesting couple of things at, at the beginning there, um, which, to be honest, I never even thought of asking you about this uh, prior to the interview, but it's, it's coming to my mind, so I'll ask you now. Obviously, the demise of um, written journalism in terms of the traditional sense of newspapers and stuff like that, um, yeah. it, it is very much you know, on a downward trajectory. It's, it, it, it seems to be a dying trade, unfortunately. Um, 
the the rise of social media, as you said, that that's been a, a big impact in that. But also the rise of fan media because we we, we here at Fourth Official are classed as the fan media, albeit we're not the biggest Rangers fan media. Heart and Hand would be would be that, and I, I have previously worked for Heart and Hand as well. How do you well? Do you think that? This that there was an opportunity for fan media to, to take such a prominent role within Rangers at any point during your role with, with, with Rangers because, to be honest, ten years ago I could never imagine this is going to. There's no other really way to say it other than being as brutal as this. I couldn't imagine unqualified um, Rangers fans being the ones to do the the, the reporting on all things Rangers, whether it's um, Press conferences, matches, or, or exclusive interviews, um, but it seems to be obviously that that's what the fans actually want. They want fan-led media. Do, do you think that that was that that was something that was always going to be the case, or do you think because of and we will come on to 2012, but do you think because of everything that happened and the way everything, the way Rangers were sort of kind of portrayed in the media, do you think that's that that led to that? I think it's a very interesting situation. I mean, I agree with you. When I was working at the club ten years ago. Uh, to take that as a, a for instance kind of date um, I, I think I'm probably the same as yourself I don't think I could have foreseen fan media rising even to 10% of what it is just now um, I, and absolutely in this day and age there's a place for fan media yeah. what I would say is I do still feel there's a place for traditional media as well I can understand completely why fan media has risen so sharply and so um so quickly as uh, sharply in terms of it's been quite a meteoric rise but it's also come very quickly uh, so i think they're probably two different things if you like um but I, I think that has in part been down to the fact that there is a distrust generally yeah. of the media um now i think most reasonable thinking people will agree and will appreciate that not every single journalist is out to get Rangers or Celtic or anyone else for that matter. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've always found it quite sad that in Scottish media, in the Scottish football media, there are very few people who are willing to come out and say that the Rangers are Celtic fans. I mean, with me, it was, um, you know, it was fairly obvious. I worked at the club for seven years and what happened in 2012 and the aftermath of that uh, on social media, for instance, led very much to me standing up for the club in my role as as a, a as a media representative within Rangers. So, you know, there, there wasn't really much hiding that I was a Rangers supporter, but I think even if that hadn't happened and it hadn't panned out that way, I still believe that I would have said, look, I'm a Rangers supporter. I don't see why it's so bad. Like, I mean, you take somebody like Ewan Murray, for instance, everybody knows he's a Hearts fan and it's not a problem for him to be a Hearts fan. And, you know, th- there are various other people who don't support Rangers or Celtic and it's, it's known who they support. Um, I could tell you probably, uh, I mean, it's like the landscape has changed a little bit in terms of personnel at the newspapers over the years that I've been away from them, but um, I still know uh, 80% probably of the, the writers in various newspapers. And I could run through every single one of them and tell you who they support. And there are quite a few in there that support Rangers and there are quite a few that support Celtic, but very, very few of them unless they have worked for one of the club publications um, and it's quite clear that, that they side with, with that team, um, they won't come out and say it because there is this thing where you're going to get judged. Um, I mean, the, the relationship between 
journalism and, and football supporters in, in Scotland is very, very different to what I encountered down here, to be honest, in, in England. Where, I mean, I, I, as I said earlier, I, I predominantly work at Sky and pretty much every single person. I mean, Mark Alford, who's the, um, the channel director at Sky Sports News, is a Leeds United fan and doesn't do anything to hide it on Twitter. And then you go right down through all the various departments within Sky Sports News and then Sky Sports on a larger scale. And there's not many people that won't say who they support. Um, and the attitude down here is very different. And I think football supporters care a bit less down here as well as to who you support. Um, it, it's so tribal in, in Glasgow. Um, yeah. I understand why that is, obviously. I mean, it's, been, it's built up over more than 100 years uh, between uh, between Rangers and Celtic. So I get why that is. Fan media, um, my personal view, I mean, obviously what's happened this season with the, the club charging media. Well, I was going to ask that, Andrew. Do you agree with that? I mean, I, I understand why Rangers have presented an argument for it. Um, I think the the reaction to what has happened there was greeted by Rangers fans quite largely. But then when they heard about some of the people that weren't getting in, uh, take Willie Vass, for example, yeah. very popular photographer who um, has been covering Rangers games for 30 plus years, I think. Um, when they found out he wasn't getting in because he hadn't paid the money, there was uproar about it, you know, and it's, which is very inconsistent, you know, it's like, oh, we're, we're glad the guys that we don't like are, are not getting in, but we're a bit annoyed that the guys we do like aren't getting in. Um, so, um, yeah, I, do I agree with it? As I say, I, I see why the club has done it. It's pretty unconventional. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, the dependence on written press to, to report things um, is not as great now as it was, say, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, even 1980s. Um, so, you know, I, I can understand the argument, but at the same time, you know, there will probably be a time when things are not going so well at Rangers and they could do with one or two friends in the written press, of which there are plenty, um, you know, but if you disillusion those people and you alienate them a little bit, they might be less inclined to help you out if there's a time where actually you could do with someone talking you up a little bit. Uh, and as we've seen at Rangers over the years, things can go downhill very quickly and things can get much better quite quickly as well. So um, that generally is the way it goes. You, you, you're never always winning or always losing. It, it kind of comes around to, to one or the other quite quickly. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that that decision... Um, I'm not sure I would necessarily say it could come back to haunt Rangers. I don't think I would say it as strongly as that. But, you know, there might be a time where one or two people at the club might question, have we done the right thing there? The feeling at the moment, I'm sure, will be that they have done the right thing. And if that's the case, and if that continues to be the case, then ultimately they probably have done the right thing for them. But I, I, I can understand why it, it would maybe go the other way. I mean, fan media, to, to go back to your original question, it has, um, has really risen up and, and you know, to put it the way you you put it with regards to people that don't have qualifications, um, you know, I mean, that that smacks the faces of people who have gone to university and trained for three or four years. I mean, I went to, you know, I built up tens of thousands of pounds in student debts because uh, I went down to England to study uh, for three years. Now, um, I'm in the fortunate position that because I contribute to the, the Rangers Match programme, I, you know, I, I do get into 
uh, the stadium and, and get access without. And obviously, it's when I've been working there for UEFA this season as well, I've been able to get in through UEFA. So I, I've not really been hindered personally by the decision to charge media or certain media for access. Um, you know, but it's uh, it, it, it's one where there are some perfectly good journalists who are being frozen out by the club because of the decision that has been made. Um, and, you know, the club will argue they've not been frozen out. You know, they're welcome to pay the money, but clearly £25,000 is a lot of money to be paying to get access. So not everybody's going to pay that. So um, I, I think the journalists would certainly argue that they've been frozen out. Um, so, you know, I just... I, I'm not sh- I'm not very comfortable with that arrangement exactly as it is at the moment. I do feel there's a place for everyone. I mean, fan media does some wonderful stuff. Uh, you guys in the heart and hand, as you mentioned, and four lads have a dream. And, you know, there are plenty of others rising up all the time as well. Uh, you know, Rangers Rabble, um, this is Ibrooks. You know, there are quite a few podcasts out there now which get yeah. good numbers. And that's because there's an appetite for it. So, you know, if there's an appetite for it and all these people are getting good numbers with their podcasts and their written content and and whatever else they do, then why shouldn't they continue? But, you know, maybe the maybe the written media has to raise raise its game a little bit. And with the rise of online and social media, that's a harder thing for them to do now than it was 20 years ago, say. Well, that's that's the ironic thing here, Andrew, because I I was discussing... um, Obviously, I'm going to be interviewing you and uh, with uh, David Edgar of Hartenhand and yeah. um, some of the points that, that, that we will come on to uh, later on in the interview. He said that um, it's very likely that a lot of what you say or some of what you say will actually be lifted by the mainstream press, the mainstream media. And that that's what really, from a fan's perspective, that's what annoys the, the Rangers fans because... That is, you, you, you train four or five years to be a journalist and then you see an article online that Aaron Ramsey's booked out a hotel, eh, sorry, booked out a restaurant for Valentine's Day for his wife. And that's, they didn't get into it for that. And they're lifting stuff from social media, they're lifting stuff from a lot of kind of third parties and they're reporting it as their own. And that that's probably where the annoyance comes from because the the, the lack of exclusives, the, the, the lack of originality, and I think that's why a lot of people went over to the fan media because it, it was new, it was original, it was, you know, more informative. Nobody cares about the example I just said there about Aaron Ramsey booking out a restaurant for Valentine's Day for his for his wife, and that that seems to be the standard we're at now. And do, 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 do you think that is because of the lack of access, or do you think that the mainstream media are going with? They think they're going with a trend of fans want to know this information but they've get the wrong end of the stick they've, they've not read the room properly well you know i mean i think i'm very grateful to have learned my trade when i did because i would not like to be um 20 years old at the moment and going through college or university learning to be a journalist because to come out of that with a qualification and then go into a newsroom and um, end up writing clickbait articles yes. uh, would be, I, I think I would find that quite soul-destroying in all honesty. Uh, but I understand why it happens because 
you know that that squeeze has been made and and you know rangers are not providing the access to to certain people that they did previously so and even those who do get access in all honesty you know press conferences are still happening over zoom at the moment there's not really any opportunity for the people who are involved in the press conferences to build any kind of relationship with giovanni van bronckhorst for instance because it's all done over a, a computer and yep. Giovanni isn't meeting these people once a week or twice a week. Uh, you know, he's, he's just seeing a computer screen and he's not really taking note of who's on the other end of the uh, the Zoom question, if you like. Um, you know, so we, we've got things like that. Um, I, I think when there is nothing coming from the club to certain media outlets, it's going to be natural that they will feed off anything to do with Rangers. So I can understand why that happens. I don't think it necessarily happens because they think Rangers fans are desperate to know this. But, you know, if I was if I was told I had to write that story about Aaron Ramsey booking the restaurant um, and promote it on social media, I, I'm pretty sure I could find a way to tease that to, to somebody where it makes them want to read it. Because, um, you know, Aaron Ramsey is a big name. He's just signed for Rangers. People want to know what he's up to. Uh, so, you know, uh, it might not be about the football necessarily, but um, you could still find a way to get the clicks. Um, and that, at the end of the day, is the business that, that people are in because they're not selling newspapers. Instead, they're relying on hits on their website so that they can drive advertising revenue. Uh, so, you know, I understand why it happens. It's, it's not the way... It should happen, I, I don't think. And I really do genuinely hope that over the course of time that the club and external media outlets who are more on the outside at the moment can find some kind of common ground because I, I think that will be best for everyone, including Rangers. Uh, the, the rise of the, the club media has been really good and, and Rangers TV is doing some terrific stuff again this season, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the same online as well. Um, I'm contributing to the match programme, which um, continues to do well, I think. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a shame that other publications such as Rangers News in the past and the monthly magazines that, that we did when I was there, uh, they weren't able to, to survive. But, you know, the, the club media is doing really well. Fan media is, is, is really prospering as well. Um, but as I said earlier, I think there's a place for everybody and I, I really do hope that over the course of time, and, and this might be a slow burner, but it takes a little bit of time to, to to find exactly what everybody's place within the, you know, the structure, if you like, should be. Uh, but but I do hope that that we can all get there because I, I do believe that everybody can live in the same bubble, um, you know, without people having to be on the outside. Uh, you know, clearly from external media uh, and, and particularly newspapers, um, there are some journalists within those newspapers who, you know, unfortunately will. Will, will will always want to drive their own agenda, whether it suits any club. You know, if, if they've got a certain thing they want to say about it, whether it's Rangers, Celtic, Aberdeen, Hearts, Hibs, whoever, you know, they, they'll do it and that'll be it. And, you know, there are certain journalists who thrive off getting banned by a club or thrive off being told, you can't do that. Um, you know, they, they then just go and do it yeah. <laughs> uh, after it, you know. So, um, you know, unfortunately, that kind of thing will always upset any attempt to... To, you know have harmony with everyone um but even with that I, you know I, I do genuinely believe there must be a way what that way is i'm not entirely sure but but i do hope we can find it eventually yeah absolutely um i actually would agree with that i think there's a place for everyone but the just finding that place is is the tricky part but that's up for that, that that's up to the people who are paid to find that um i think david graham he's he's got the he's got the task of doing that so i don't envy him to be honest um, just just on your your 
period of time at Rangers. Um, you joined in 2007, so that that would just be after Le Guin left and Walter arrived back. Would that be right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Walter was the manager. Uh, my second week at the club, um, we were away to Barcelona in the Champions League, so um, it, was, it was a pretty decent start, in fairness, uh, apart from the result, obviously. But uh, to, to go from like, a few weeks earlier, I was covering like local golf tournaments in Aberdeen. <laughs> and, and literally, it's local golf tournaments where it's guys finishing their work at five o'clock and then going playing a, a round in the evening. Um, you know, to, so to, to go from that to going to the new camp where I think there were, what, 86, 87,000 people at that game. Uh, a young Lionel Messi scored one of the goals as well. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, I think he did anyway. I'm sure that's correct. So, uh, Henri. Say again, sorry, Henri. And, I think it was Messi and Henri scored, too. Yeah, I'm sure Messi did score. So, um, you know, to go from from one extreme there to the other was was uh, something else. I mean, like my first day, I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, but myself and uh, and David Melvin, who still heads up the uh, the Rangers TV side of things in the, the media department, um, him and I started, I, I think it was Halloween in uh, 2007. Um, and our first day, Sandy Jarvin gave us a tour of Ibrooks, uh, just the two of us, which, um, and as I said, I don't think I fully appreciated it at the time, it didn't take until Sandy became unwell for me to to then appreciate it. I I, I grew to appreciate it very quickly. Um, that you know you had uh, a proper club legend giving you a you know a personal audience. Um, and I, I, Ibrox is a really really special place when it's empty as much as it is when it's full. Um, it's uh, there's always been. I remember I was in the boys' brigade when I was a kid, and we took part. I think the Rotary Club one year had their world conference in Glasgow and the opening ceremony was was at Ibrooks and it was that was the first time I ever went on the pitch. I must have been, I don't know, thirteen, maybe fourteen, something like that. And uh, and my boys' brigade company was was asked to take part in the opening ceremony. Um and you had all of us and you know, some youth clubs from around around Glasgow, I guess it would have been, um, taking part in uh, in the flag bearing ceremony. Uh, so everybody was carrying out a flag. I think I had like Madagascar or something like that. Um, but we had to be there about seven o'clock in the morning. And I remember even then, as as I say, maybe a 13 year old, um, I, I was sitting up the back of the govern stand uh, because we were all in the, the concourse in the, the govern uh, the govern rear. Um, and so I'd kind of gone outside for a bit of fresh air or something like that. And it, it turned out I was the only person sitting in the stadium bowl and even at that point, when I was still quite young, I appreciated how special it was to, to have nobody in it. So to then, all these years later, be getting a tour around that uh, with Sandy Jarden telling me <laughs> this, that and the next thing. It was just him, uh, David and I, uh, was really, really special. But yeah, I mean, to, to go to Rangers and to, and to spend seven years there was was remarkable, you know. I mean, really, I mean, that, that season, um, we went to Barcelona. Um, I never went to Stuttgart for the final group game because there were four of us in the media department and only three went on a trip. So that was the one that I had to set out. But then when Rangers went into the AFA Cup, uh, I was at the games away to Panathinaikos, uh, Werder Bremen and Fiorentina. And then the final, everybody went to the final. So uh, so the only game that I missed in that run was, was Sporting. And uh, and I think in the, the February I'd also gone out with um, 
the photographer at the time, Lynn Cameron, who uh, left a, a couple of years later. Uh, her and I went over to, to Monte Carlo to interview Dado Purcell, uh, which was was a, a brilliant experience as well. Um, so, you know, I, again, in, in contrast to the local golf tournaments in Aberdeen, to, to go to Rangers and, and have like five or six trips like that. And that season, even though it obviously ended in, in disappointment with uh, losing the UEFA Cup final and, and, and the league on the last day as well. Um, and, and as well, the Scottish Cup and the League Cup Particularly the Scottish Cup felt like a real anticlimax. Yeah, it was weird. Everything else that had been missed out on, but you know, it was still a very, very special season. Um, and then obviously that was um, the the kind of the prelude, if you like, for for three in a row after that, 2009, 10, and 11, which uh, you know, just some remarkable times at the club. And um, yeah, a period of the club which probably doesn't um, get recognised as as three in a row. I mean, I know three in a row is, is not nine in a row. Um, but that uh, run to have taken Rangers from where they were under Le Guin, Walter coming in, taking them so quickly to a European final and then winning uh, the, all the trophies that he won and taking his total up to 21 over two spells at the club. I mean, you know, it's just a, a magnificent time to be part of the club um, and everything up until uh, it all went wrong with administration and financial troubles uh, was, you know, really, really enjoyable. What, what was it like... Uh... Obviously, you mentioned the FA Cup final, but the the real highlight of that getting to the final that we'll love with everyone, particularly because of how the final went itself, was Florence. What was that like that night, just to be there and the role that you had um, and the aftermath? I'm sure you had some access to maybe, maybe not so much the dressing room after it, but you had access to the players and the management team, Walt and Ali, just... It must have just been complete and utter, just I, 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 euphoria, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it was absolutely. And the thing is, as well, is you know, it's, there's something quite nice about it because I, I mean, I can't remember exactly who was in the press box that night, but I'm pretty certain there would have been guys who were naturally Celtic-minded or Celtic-supporting people. Mm-hmm. who were happy to see Rangers get to the final that night. Um, you know, I mean, like, don't get me wrong, uh, I didn't take any pleasure from seeing Celtic get into Seville five years earlier at all, so uh, I, I, don't, I don't wish for that to be translated that way. But, you know, <laughs> so there was something quite nice about it that, you know, even guys that didn't support Rangers uh, and weren't necessarily Celtic fans, you know, they might have been Aberdeen fans or whatever, but everybody was pretty much unified on the press bus afterwards as being... Wow, that that's phenomenal for Rangers to get through. But I mean, you know, the, the penalty shootout. Uh, I mean, the game itself. I can just remember. Well, I think Christian Vieri came on with about yeah. fifteen minutes of normal time to go. Should have had a hat trick, and, <laughs> and then it went to extra time, and then he should have had another hat trick. Uh, and you know, um, I I still maintain that what Rangers had to withstand against Werder Bremen in Germany was slightly worse. That was yeah. And, you yeah, know, I, I remember being there that night and um, the corners, they had big screens at either end of the ground and, and the corners were sponsored by this, um, well, it must have been a local shipping company. And every time there was a corner up on the screen, this big ship would go across the screen and it, the, the the horn would honk. <laughs> and I, th- I think looking at the stats afterwards. Must I give you a headache? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Bre- Bremen had something like 18 corners that night yeah. and 36 shots on goal. Uh, Rangers, I think, had like two corners and four shots. Uh, you know, I mean, it was it was the biggest one now doing you've ever seen. Um, 
And obviously, uh, the, the kind of centrepiece in terms of it being a positive result for Rangers was the magnificent save that Alan McGregor made. But, um, you know, Fiorentina after that was uh, just, it was unbelievable in the, the penalty shootout. Um, I, I think I was writing the match report on the website. I could be wrong. Um, we had a match report and a, a live blog running. Um, I was maybe doing the blog. Do you know what? I mean, I really can't remember, but I think I would have been doing something online. And um, Neil Smith, Walter's son, who is the, the programme editor, um, I think when, when Nacho scored the penalty, um, you know, I mean, the press box erupted as much as the Rangers end did. Uh, I, I can assure you of that. And I just remember jumping like in a kind of I don't want to call it a huddle but that's what it was <laughs> so it was like a, a mini huddle and it was myself uh, Neil and Chick Young and the three of us were just and, and Chick genuinely is a St Mirren fan you know that's not some kind of ruse to disguise that he's actually a Rangers fan he is a St Mirren fan uh, you know but he was absolutely delighted and the three of us were, were just jumping up and down uh, and it was just that it was a disbelief as much as anything after that you know I mean I, I remember getting back into the um, in the press box, and I think already by that point there was talk that um, the the Russian football authorities were, were going to cancel all of Zenit's games, so they were clear going through to the final, uh, and at that point the final was 13 days away um, meanwhile it was stacking up and stacking up, so uh, although it was brilliant, um, very very quickly kind of attentions were turning to the, the imbalance that there was going to be leading up to the final and how difficult it was going to be. Um, but, uh, you know, that whole run was 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 unbelievable. It was actually it was my birthday uh, when we were in Bremen. Um, and just little things like that added to that trip again for me personally. Uh, you know, Parathenaikos, I'd actually been at Parathenaikos about four, three, four months earlier uh, because Aberdeen had played them in the group stage and I was still working at the Press and Journal at that point, so I'd been over for that game. Uh, you know, so... Um, and uh, and Manchester itself. Manchester, the bizarre thing I'll tell you about my build up to the UEFA Cup final um, was on the night before. Carling, who were obviously the the club's uh, shirt sponsors at the time, um, put on a kind of reception in a pub for the the, the Scottish press. Um, so it was like kind of food and free drinks. Um, so we went along to that. I think we'd ended up going to the casino afterwards as well. And I came back to the uh to the hotel uh, we were staying in a hotel next to piccadilly uh, station and i came in about three o'clock in the morning and i heard this voice and i recognized the voice but i just couldn't quite place who it was and uh and i kind of walked around to the the kind of seating area where the the, the residence bar was and it's uh i think there were two rangers fans um a journalist who I won't name um, because uh, what what happened later on um, kind of took the mickey out of him a little bit, uh, so I won't name him. Um, and then Johnny Vegas was sitting there randomly holding court with with these other people. So uh, eventually the journalist, so the two Rangers fans left, and um, the journalist fell asleep. So Johnny ended up writing like letters on his knuckles uh, while he was sleeping. Uh, which was quite bizarre. Uh, so then the journalist eventually woke up and went to his bed, and I and this is I'm not even um, I'm not even exaggerating this to make myself sound good or anything like that. But I basically sat and we didn't actually drink very much because, but you know by that point of the night you, you've kind of drank yourself sober almost if you like because it's just been a sort of steady night out type thing. And uh, 
I think I sat till eight o'clock in the morning with Johnny Vegas, and we got talking about. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, you know, it actually got quite deep. Um, it was around the time he'd been accused of groping a woman on stage. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but it happened quite recently, and he he started talking about it. Um, as if like I was a really close friend, and obviously I wasn't at all. But he was, you know, he was really, really um, upset by, and, and I could only take him at face value. Obviously, I don't know if he was turning on or whatever, but I would like to think that, you know, at seven, eight o'clock in the morning, the guy's probably been a bit more honest about it then than he ever would at any other time. But, um, you know, he, um, you know, we talked about that. We talked about he did a year up in Glasgow when he was a student. Uh, I think he did like a. A placement for a year at, at Glasgow Uni, I think it was, and he, he kind of said then that he'd, he'd like rugby league is more his sport, but he said he had gone to a couple of games at Rangers. Uh, so oh. <laughs> it, it, kind of, it kind of all ended with me saying at eight o'clock in the morning, I'm really sorry, Johnny, but I've got to go to my bed because like my team's playing in a European final tonight. Uh, so I said to him, like, anytime you're up in Glasgow, feel free to get in touch and we can sort you out with tickets if you want to come to a game. And he said, right, well, how am I going to do that if I don't have your number? So I gave him my number. Uh, he gave me his, so I texted him once I woke up later in the day, said, oh, it was a good laugh uh, last night, Johnny, all the best. I, I think he was in Manchester filming Benidorm at that point, and um, I never heard anything back from him, I thought, right, fine, fair enough. And then genuinely about two months later, uh, I was sitting at a game in Germany against Prussen Münster, who I, I think at that point were like a fourth tier uh, German side in pre-season. Uh, we are playing a game against them, and at half time my, my phone goes, and uh, it's a text from Johnny Vegas replying as if I had just texted him 10 minutes ago, uh, just saying, yeah, it was a great night, mate, really enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> never heard from him since, but um, yeah, but I've got a photo of him and I outside the hotel at half past six in the morning. He'd gone out for a cigarette, uh, so I'd just gone out with him and just stood while he was smoking it. And uh, there was a photo of the two of us. So, yeah, that was my build-up to the UEFA Cup final. He's so. always quite surreal. You'll probably find it when he texts you. That was him just sobering up from that night in question. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. Because I think he'd, uh, he'd had a fair old session, to be fair to him. So. But, yeah, I mean, you know, some, some amazing times. And, and you know, working with some amazing people at the club as well. Some, some genuinely good uh, football people. Um, and, uh, I was going to come on to that. Obviously, you worked with Walter Smith being the manager and Ali's, Ali as the assistant and Ali goes on to be the manager. Just what were they two like to work with? Did you ever get the, the Walter stare? Were you ever on the bad side of Walter? Um, we all know he, he was an absolute gentleman and I have no doubt about it. You'll probably confirm this. He, he would have treated you well, but did you ever, did you ever go on the, the wrong side of him? Um, I, I had the stare once and it, it was quite strange because it it was a stare, but it was kind of quite a restrained stare, if that makes sense. He um it, it was after a Boxing Day game against Celtic at Ibrox, which Rangers had lost one 0 and in my kind of awkward way of trying to kind of break the ice a little bit, um when he came in to do his post-match interview with me, I sort of said to him, oh, Merry Christmas. And uh, clearly, not Merry Christmas anymore because we just went <laughs> to Celtic. So I sort of got the stare then. But I think Walter, at the same time, what I mean by it being a bit restrained was I think he sort of saw the funny side of it, but he didn't want to show that he'd seen the funny side of it. Yeah. Um, so it, it was a stare, but it wasn't a stare. So, But that's the only time that I really had it. I mean, when Walter passed away a few months ago, I... Um, you know, there was a period at Rangers where I, I had 
like a sit down with him, just him and I, uh, me doing the interview every week for, uh, I don't know, I mean, I, I can't say exactly how long it would have been, but, you know, there was certainly a spell where it was me that was interviewing him every week, you know, there was, like, Lindsay Heron was working at the club and, and uh, he was in charge of the media team, so at first when I went in there, it was often him that, that interviewed Walter. Um, over the course of time, Lindsay left the club and, and I was still there, so, um, you know, I, I, yeah, I was really, really fortunate to have that opportunity, and, and Walter, Walter, it's not been a surprise to hear all the glowing tributes uh, yeah. from from so many people towards Walter. Um, one thing that I remember Lindsay saying to me when I joined the club was that he always he always struggled with with Graham Souness in terms of the the aura that Souness had kind of just made him a little bit apprehensive when he went to speak to him and almost a bit nervous and there was nothing with Walter that should have made me feel that way but for a, quite a while I did feel like that with Walter um, I mean I'd first met Walter for the very first time when I was a kid uh, I'd gone to Duck Bay with my mum and dad uh, and I think maybe my sister as well for dinner when I must have been about I don't know 10 years old something like that and Walter had been in with Ethel uh, having having dinner and I'd gone up to him and said are you Walter Smith and asked him for his autograph um, <laughs> you know so I, I wasn't nervous at all then but <laughs> when, when I then had him as a colleague uh, you know there were times where I think just the enormity of the man, you know, what yes. he achieved and, you know, what he got out of um, people who, you know, shouldn't have achieved what they did sometimes. Um, you know, it was quite remarkable. Um, I, I, and I, I can see um, exactly why the relationship between him and Ali worked so well in a football sense as well, because it was very much the good cop, bad cop uh, routine. You know, I mean, Ali, um, I mean, Ali's still somebody who, uh, with his work at Sky, I mean, he's not in at Sky Sports too often, but he was in um, shortly before Christmas, um, not that long after Walter had passed, um, and I had a chat with him for half an hour then. But um, I mean, he's, you know, there have been plenty of occasions over the years, um, football-wise and also socially as well, um, that uh, that um, have been brilliant. I mean, one that stands out for me with Ali is that. Um, and, and this got me quite a lot of brownie points with my friends. Um, Ali, now this would have been in 2014, I think. Um, it's the end of the season, and um, at the end of the season every year, you have quite a few games on the pitch at Ibrooks. Uh, you know, charity games and football aid and all that kind of stuff happens. So um, I got a phone call from Ali, I think, on the Tuesday, saying, uh, what are you up to on Friday? And I said, nothing, um, not got any plans at all. I said, I'm, I'm going away for the weekend with my, my pals, but, you know, that potentially that might be Saturday morning before we go uh, away. We were going to go and climb some mountains. And uh, he said to me, do you want a game on the pitch? My pals against your pals. <laughs> I said, uh, right, aye, okay, fair enough. So, uh, his, his pals, <laughs> just imagine. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, so, so my pals, unfortunately, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not like proper pals with, um, any international footballers as in <laughs> that's guys I went to school with but um, but Ali's pals included Gordon Jury, uh, <laughs> Rab McKinnon who played for Motherwell in Scotland um, Stevie Walker who is still a, a physio Rangers now um, he's from the northeast of England and played semi-pro for, for a number of years so yeah there, there was a bit of a difference in the teams I've got to be honest um, so and needless to say Ali and his pals won 9-4 I think it was um, but but that was a, a fantastic experience because I think I think I managed to get seven of 
of my pals a, a game at Ibrooks along with like kind of friends of friends and that kind of thing as well. And we managed to see our team together. So um and I think I, I gave away a penalty where McCoyst um and I'm not just saying this in, in my own defence, but McCoyst absolutely dived for it. And <laughs> and he knows and I know that he dived for it. Um so I think I made up for, for that by kicking uh his son or Gail up in the air about five, six times and, and <laughs> not giving away any penalties, which I was quite surprised at, to be honest. So, uh, because our girl was just a whippet and, um, and you know, I could, I could cover the ground, but he was quicker than me. So the best way to deal with that was just to keep he- uh, kicking him. So, uh, but yeah, you know, some nice memories there. Um, you know, one pre-season myself and Neil Smith played McCoyst and Duran at tennis and lost narrowly. Um, we, the media team took on, so the media team we had in pre-season, whatever year it was, it was in Germany. Uh, Walter was the manager. So it was a team of McCoyst, Kenny McDowell, Jim Stewart. I think Durant was the sub he came on. Uh, Adam Owen, the fitness coach. And there was one other. Took on a media team of me, uh, Neil, who was a, a, a kind of young footballer in his day. I think he played for Clyde and maybe a couple other teams. Uh, Neil Smith. So, um, so he was a, a good player. Um, David, who, who's at Rangers TV, Rab Boyle, um, one or two others. And actually, unbelievably, at halftime, we were winning by two, um, which I'm still not entirely sure how that was. I don't, and I'm not sure if they were just being kind on us or not really trying or whatever it was. Um, they did come back to eventually win by two. Uh, but at the end of it, Walter, I remember Walter just kind of laughing and uh, saying to his team, oh, they boys had you worried for a minute, didn't they? Uh, I'm not sure they were that worried, but you know, um, it was good fun. I think I took a Kenny McDowell rocket in the face from them. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to be in, you don't want to be in uh, line for that, no. So, uh, but yeah, no, you know, some great times. No, absolutely, sounds sounds amazing. It really, really does. Um, obviously, uh, you know, it's now time to get into the depressing stuff <laughs> naturally. <laughs> um, so obviously Walter retired uh, after three in a row. That that date called Marmont, which again is just another special memory, even for you as an employee at the club, as a yeah. fan. Um, it was it was just such a special day. But a couple of days before that, maybe even have been a week or week or two before that, the the ownership of Rangers changed from Sir David Murray to to Craig White. So prior to the prior to the the change of ownership. That there was rumours constantly um, that Rangers were in quite severe financial difficulty. The bank was running the club, and um, David Murray obviously had wanted to sell the club. He, <clears throat> sorry, he appointed Alistair Johnson uh, as chairman with the sole purpose of finding a buyer. Um, Craig White, he he came pretty much from nowhere. And very quickly, guys like Alistair Johnson, who, as I said, his job was to to find a buyer for the club, he's dissenting against Craig White by basically saying this isn't the man for Rangers, Paul Murray. Um, Before the the eventual takeover by White, how worrying was it to hear the rumours about, obviously, the bank running the club? And were you directly affected by any of this? I've got to be honest, I never at any point was told my job was at risk other than the general meetings that the staff had where we were told that, you know, that there was the risk of redundancies. I was never told directly that, that my job was, was at risk. Um, and perhaps naively, I was never massively worried uh, by, by that in terms of what it would mean for me. 
clearly I was worried about what was going to happen with the club because if there's no club there's no job and with everything else emotionally that the emotional ties that you have with the club and the history that you have and all the rest of it as well clearly that you, you worry about that side of it but from a from an employment perspective I was never massively worried but you know when the stories are coming about finances I mean I uh, I get 27% in my higher maths prelim uh, way back in the day because I messed about too much I didn't really enjoy maths and I was advised not to sit the final exam so numbers are not my strong point and they never ever have been so when i see financial stuff i'm inclined to listen to people who know about it rather than to try to draw my own conclusions from it because my own conclusions will probably be wrong um so you know clearly there was a lot of talk and the talk was growing and gathering about financial problems and um you know i mean what happened with ticketus in the season ticket money being mortgaged um you know that was i mean even even thinking back to that now i mean obviously the, the 10th anniversary has has just passed and there were, there were a few articles in the the press uh reflecting on what happened and you know that it brings back memories of, of you know the impact that that had and um various other things that, that happened as well i mean you know there are the big tax case alone sort of drove rangers into the situation that they were in whereas you know, um, and, and everything that's gone through the court since then. It, it may have been that Rangers didn't have to go into administration away back then. Um, but, you know, what was happening at the time, clearly it was uncertain. Um, I was at the training ground on the day that it broke that Rangers were filing to, to go into administration. I was in the press room uh, at the training ground and um, it had come out I think it was STV that had broken it first, um, saying that, that Rangers had filed papers with the court session. And uh, and I phoned back to the office at iBooks and I said, have you seen this report? And when I was on the phone, Craig White walked into the, the training ground. And, and Craig White's somebody who, in all honesty, we didn't see very much. We saw him when he arrived at the start um, and he was there very occasionally, but um, he's not somebody that we had a lot of, of dealings with, in all honesty. Uh, but he he walked in, and I think I I could I could be wrong with this, but I think I had seen Ali when I went to make the phone call back to the office, and I said to him about it. And I think it later transpired that White was arriving at the training ground to have a meeting with Ali to tell him that the club had filed for administration. Uh, that was about half past two, and I think by about four o'clock, certainly four thirty, but possibly by four o'clock. All the staff were gathered in uh, in what was Bar 72 at the time um, for, a, for a meeting and, and White told us then that um, it was nothing to worry about, it was a standard procedure, uh, we'd be out of administration again in about 10 days. Um, and he, Lindsay did an interview with him in the trophy room. Um, you, obviously you'll remember the shots of White walking in the, the, the front door. Yeah. of the stand and and getting heckled and what have you so that interview was done shortly after that um and then that was last any of us ever saw him i think so um you know he he clearly felt that he'd be able to speculate to accumulate with the uh the ticket to steal and, and and structuring things a certain way um i don't i'm, I'm not surprised certainly that um, he saw an opportunity there to make money um, 
clearly it didn't work out. And uh, him coming in and, and things happening the way they did then kick-started a sort of chain reaction where the people that replaced him weren't massively great either. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but going go 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 from David Murray to, to Craig White, and David Murray was quite a, a strict operator. Everything had to be structured. They liked things done his way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, almost as a dictator. Uh, that, that I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. It's just Murray knew what he wanted, and he wanted Rangers run a certain way. Could you tell straight away that when ownership changed from Murray to White, that things were different here? Because for, for all David Murray's faults, and, and there is plenty, um, he was a very professional, successful businessman. Mm. And Craig White just wasn't. Uh, professionalism, he, he lacked in professionalism. He, he was never a successful businessman. He, he, he was a... I probably don't know what the best word to describe him as. He, he, an opportunist uh, is probably the best word. Um, could, could you see a change in structure and professionalism in the atmosphere uh, and, and within the club uh, from Murray to pre-administration? Well, one thing that I noticed, obviously as a journalist, I, I, I like to think that I'm a fairly... Um, I'm fairly observational and, you know, some, some things will obviously pass me by, but uh, I like to think that I pick up on things from time to time. And, and one thing that I certainly noticed was um, after the league had been won uh, and we'd gone back to Ibrooks, so, so on the day that Rangers beat Kilmarnock 5-1, we'd gone back to Ibrooks and had the trophy there and fans were allowed into the stadium. Um, I remember being in the tunnel and White had come up the tunnel from the pitch with the trophy in his hand. Yeah. And... That didn't sit well with me, you know. No, and I, th- I think it might have been Paul Murray. I could be wrong, but but I just remember hearing something. There were a few people there. I think it was Paul Murray. I heard him saying um, words to the effect of... This isn't an exact quote, but words to the effect of he might want to win one himself first before he does that. Um, and... You know that that stuck with me because clearly the um, the regime that was there um, had massive reservations about white and had done for for quite a long time. Um, I mean, I remember so a few months earlier it would have been in and pardon me if the dates are wrong, but I think this is December 2010. Rangers played Bursaspor in Turkey in the Champions League. I think it was the 2010-11 season. Um, in fact, yeah, it was, because I'm trying to picture the strips of that season. So, yeah, it was that season. So, December 2010, uh, I was the kind of senior member of the media team, if you like, in terms of I was the one that was kind of writing sort of the, the main stuff on the website. And it's like we kind of were all sort of similar standing, if you like, but I was the one that was kind of dealing with the, the sort of the main news output. And... Um, Alistair Johnson on that trip wanted to put stuff on the website. Basically, um, warning Rangers fans in in the most legal way that he could possible um, to basically he was trying he was trying to influence them basically on white and his reservations on white. And I remember. I spent a lot of that trip to Turkey 
Um, in the so when you go on these trips, the press generally stays in one hotel and then the team stays in a different hotel. We don't all stay in the same hotel. Rangers always put uh, the press in, in different hotels and we stayed in the press hotel, uh, not in the team hotel. So um, I had to go to the team hotel where um, there were some board members there. I don't think they were all there, but um, basically it was myself and Carol Patton, who was the head of PR at the time. Um, Alistair wanted to do this Q&A where um, I asked questions and he gave answers. Uh, but obviously it was a very scripted Q&A where we we basically, between us all, wrote the questions and the answers together. So, um, and Alistair wanted to put this on the website so that he could, um, he could get it out there that what he thought of Craig White. Now, ultimately, that never saw the light of day. And, and I spent, I think, I remember spending about six hours working on it. Um, and we we had it all kind of ready to go, if you like. And I think the lawyers looked at it and um, what was there, um, it was deemed to be, it would have broken uh, takeover rules, I think, um, from memory. I don't know if that's exactly correct, but it, would, it basically would have broken rules and it would have gone against what Alistair was actually allowed to do. Was, was there a reaction from David Murray about this potential article? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know uh, to what extent if Murray knew about it, if Murray was uh, involved in the process. As I say, there was a... So from what I can recall, we... And I mean, you're going back, what, uh, 11 years now, more than 11 years, but we um, had a chat with Alistair drafted some questions and kind of went through his answers to the questions with a sort of fine tooth comb and got them kind of exactly correct as he wanted them to be. And then the board had a meeting to go over this. So um, so everybody who, I, I don't think that would, would have been a board meeting that would have excluded people. So um, I can't remember at that point who was still involved and who still wasn't um you know but i think all the sort of martin bain and paul murray and uh mcintyre were all still there um i mean murray by that point his involvement with rangers is becoming less and less yeah, so sure. uh I, and certainly he wasn't involved on a day-to-day basis and i would imagine there were probably plenty of board meetings that took place without him being there but with him being knowing that they were taking place uh, so um, I think John Gregg was involved in the meeting as well. I could be wrong with that, but uh, obviously I wasn't involved with the meeting because I, I wasn't on the board. Uh, but um, although ironically, the other Andrew Dixon may well have been involved in it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah. So anyway, it, at the end of the day, it uh, it didn't go out, and I was told to delete uh, the file. Um, and uh, but you know the, the whole point of that story is that that was best part of six months before the takeover went through um you know and and at that point there were very grave concerns from uh, the board um and i think you can take from it that if alistair had all these things to say and then the board had a meeting about it then what alistair said represented the views of the entire board yeah. so um you know i, I think uh, they knew that the, the, they'd done their due diligence and they knew that something was not right with craig white and that was obviously the way it played out. So, um, yeah, uh, with, with hindsight, they were absolutely right by the looks of things. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, 
administration was filed on Valentine's Day ten years ago to the day almost. Um, and the narrative from Craig White is consistent with the narrative that he gave you guys as employees uh, that you know this is going to be a pre-package admin. It's going to be over and done with. It's quick as will be in administration as quick as we're out it kind of thing and that just complete lies there's no other way of of um really kind of saying anything otherwise and subsequently um the the holding company for rangers football club was was placed into liquidation still are um during that period of time the administration was filed and, and obviously the cva was voted down um are you? I know you said that you weren't overly worried because communication wasn't great. Uh, did Duffin Phelps, did they come to you and say, look, your job is one of the ones that we're looking to make redundant? Or did they ever say to you, look, you'll be fine because we need the media? Um, did you start looking for new jobs? Naturally, obviously, you've got you've got a you've got your own sort of kind of personal situation that you have to look after first. Um, it must have been really quite uncertain and difficult for you. Yeah, I mean, I think when I eventually left two and a half years after Rangers went into administration, I think that was the fifth round of redundancies. So um, while I'm saying that I never really feared for my job, you obviously had that kind of danger of maybe you will get the tap on the shoulder when you're not expecting to uh, happen several times over. So, um, I mean, Duff and Phelps, I think from memory, they had a couple of meetings with the staff quite early on. Um Sandy Jarden, as I think has been documented by other people, spoke up really well on behalf of the staff. Um, Sandy had quite a fearless nature about him with that sort of thing, where other people might be scared to ask the question for fear of reprisals in terms of, um, you know, what might happen with her job. Sandy didn't really care about that. And, you know, Sandy knew where his place at the club was. So Sandy felt that he could speak without um, any danger of anything happening to him. And and he did so very well for the staff. But there were only really a couple of meetings with, with Duff and Phelps. Um, and over the course of time, as I say, there were there were quite a few rounds of redundancies. I mean, in terms of looking for jobs, I, I, I can recall applying for a couple of jobs. I can't, I can't tell you what they were uh, in terms of I can't remember what they were because it was so long ago um, but yeah I mean it was unsettling of course it was um, I mean I've taken a little bit of flack from people on social media because I, I've kind of said said once previously um, and it was it was probably a couple of years after I'd left Rangers I, I think I said that I, I was glad to be away from the club and people take that in the heat of the moment as a really raw comment and and, and think that I hate Rangers or something like that. And that's, that's not what I was saying. I was glad to be away from it from the point of view that I, I had lost my dad three months earlier and mm-hmm. I'd grown tired of firefighting for, for Rangers and standing up for Rangers. And that's not Rangers' fault. And I don't say that there's any gripe against Rangers with that, but it, it wears you down. And uh, it, it had worn me down by that point. And, and a large part of that was... was my family situation with with losing my father um he'd had cancer for um probably all in the best part of 18 months uh that we were aware of so it'd been quite a long process and at one point it looked like he was going to make it and then um things kind of turned around quite quickly and um from the point where it appeared that the cancer was back to to him passing away was only like 10 11 weeks so you know i i had kind of bigger things on on my, my plate than 
uh, caring too much about someone's opinion if I was to leave Rangers or stay at Rangers or whatever. Um, so when I've had flack for it since then, by all, by all means, I can understand why people would take it that way. Um, as I, I, think, I think, Andrew, to stick out for you, if, if, if the drama in the circus of Rangers during this time was too much for Ali McCoyst, then that says it all, because it needs to be remembered that Ali McCoyst had enough. He walked away from it, and he he went through a lot of it as well. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you know, everyone did to various extents, and and Ali obviously right at the top of the tree, more than most, if anyone. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the things that he did for the club and for the staff as well, and keeping up morale, and you know, you know, I mean, Ali was always someone there that uh, would give you the advice if you, you know, if you wanted it, you know, and he would make time for you, and he would have a chat with you, and he'd look after people. So, um, you know, Ali, in the in the same way as Sandy was, was an absolute leader. So, and yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it wore him down as well. Um, you know, when I say that I was glad to be away from it, I was glad to not be firefighting uh, anymore, and I was glad to not be going through the constant battle of Rangers are dead, no they're not, yes they are, no they're not, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that that's why I was glad. And because, let's be honest as well, for a long time, Rangers was a, an absolute circus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, as much as as much as much we all support the club and we all love the club, it was an absolute circus at points, you know. Uh, some of the characters that were in there, um, I mean, I... I, I remember um, Brian Stockbridge. Oh, God, that's an old name. So he, I think he had, I can't remember exactly what it was, but he'd basically suggested that I was leaking stuff or something like that. Uh, I can't remember the specifics of it, um, but I, um, and I didn't trust Stockbridge at all, at all understandably a lot of people were the same um so i and this was this all happened it was literally like the week before my dad was going to go into hospital to have a tumor removed Uh, and it was a and it's a big operation as well and there there were certain risks with it so my dad's had esophageal cancer in his throat uh, so there are certain risks that came with that such as um if it went slightly wrong he might never speak again for instance yeah yeah there was a danger that he would obviously die during the operation, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, there was a lot on my plate at that point. So I didn't really need Brian uh, Stockbridge to be suggesting that I was doing anything untoward when I wasn't. Uh, so I, and and this is quite bold with hindsight, but I just went up and knocked his office door and said, can I have a word? And I went in. Uh, now, to give myself a bit of security, I'd put my mobile phone on, airplane mode and stuck it in the inside pocket of my suit jacket and pressed record so that I had a recording of the conversation, um, which I no longer have. But at the time, I kind of used it as security and I went in and I said to him, look, I've heard what's been suggested. Do you think that I'm doing this? And he backtracked extremely quickly on it. And I said, look, if you are saying it, I would rather you just said it because my dad's having a major operation next week. He's been unwell for a number of months now. And I don't need this. Um, and he very quickly with that said, look, no, no, there's no problem at all. No problem. Blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, some of the people that you were dealing with, such as him. The, the, say, uh, the, the ironic thing is here that you've got somebody like Stockbridge, who Rangers fans seen through him straight away. But his boss, who we're going to come on to, Charles Green, is in the press 24-7 at this point. 
telling everyone everything and and more. You know, you had the the racist comment against Imran Ahmed, um, embarrassing the club, and and Stockbridge has the audacity to to question your integrity when his boss is a loose cannon. And yeah. This this is this is the stuff like I'm really glad that you're speaking about it because as you said you've you've had a bit of flack and obviously the the personal situation with your dad and stuff like that but even even if you weren't having to go through that with your dad it would have wore you down anyway and of course, yeah. people have to people have to realise that because this it did become from an outsider looking in um, I'm just a fan wasn't obviously an employee but it, it did become a case of I can't trust anyone here and there seemed to be a new face arriving in the building every single week. Yeah well I mean as I said earlier uh, I think uh, it was Derek Lambias that, that dealt with my uh, my redundancy and I never met Derek Lambias. I mean I'd um, I, you know so one of my colleagues in, in the press office took voluntary redundancy. Uh, he had phoned me on the Thursday night I think it was um, so he was in his office and I was in my office and he phoned me and he said, can you come through for a minute? So I went through to see him and he said, look, um, I'm off. Uh, I'm, I'm out of here. And I said, oh, mate, I'm really sorry. And he said, no, no, it's in my terms. I'm choosing to go. And that kind of just triggered something in my head. So um, at that point, I was, I'm from Cathcart in the south side of Glasgow. So from, from Ibrooks to there was about a 20 minute drive. And f- basically for the duration of that drive and the way home, I just weighed it up in my head and I thought, well, the club has agreed that I can leave if I find something else. And so they'd given staff generally like a kind of three or four month period, I think it was, in which if you can find something else, you can go and take voluntary redundancy. But then that window closes. And with me, they'd agreed to keep it open indefinitely because of my circumstances. So um, obviously hearing that someone else had, was choosing to go, I weighed it up in that 15, 20 minute drive. And by the time I got home, I, I thought, right, I'm going to go as well. Um, by that point, I'd been talking to to Sky. Um, I had um, I'd become friends by that point with uh, Michael Bridge, who uh, quite a lot of Rangers. Oh, brilliant guy, brilliant guy. Uh, Rangers fans will probably know from Twitter, so I'd become friendly with with Michael. Um, the head of the channel at Sky Sports News is is a guy called Steve Scott, who is from Arbroath and and is a big Rangers fan. So uh, Steve and Michael were were friends at that point. Uh, Steve had got Michael into Rangers uh, and he came up to watch. He came and watched Rangers against Elgin, I think, in the third division and then against our broth uh, in League One, uh, both at Ibrooks. So uh, by that point, Michael and I had become quite good friends and, and Michael had said to me, look, come down and, and see what it's like at Sky. So, you know, everything that was going on at Rangers and, you know, I, had, I one job that I had applied for actually um just, I think, just after my dad had passed away, um, was with Sky uh, Sports in their football department as a as an online journalist, and I, I and applying for jobs at Sky. I mean, there's hundreds of people go for them. Um, a couple of people had put words in for me, but they weren't in the right department and didn't have enough influence there for. And I kind of got down to a kind of long list of about 20, 25 people, but not to the short list. But then off the back of that, I was offered the chance to come and, and trial for the freelance pool uh, at, at Sky Sports News, which which um, that came up as well. So with that in my head and everything else that was going on at Rangers and the fact that my dad had passed away, it, it felt like the right thing to do. And, and looking back, it absolutely was the right thing to do. And when I, I said before about how I had been glad to be, be away from it, 
I was glad to be away from it because Rangers at that point and for a good while after was, you know, it was so disjointed and yeah. it, it, what, it doesn't matter if you support the club. It's for some people, it's a place of employment. And just because you support the club and just because you love what happens on the park doesn't mean that what happens off the park is easy or always enjoyable. And at that point, it wasn't anymore. Uh, unfortunately, um, and and trust me, I'm I'm as sad about that as as anyone else because I would have loved nothing more than to have joined Rangers like Melvin did in October 2007 and still be there today like he is. Uh, you know, um, I would I would have loved nothing more than for that to to be the case. But for me, it was it was time to go. So uh, and looking back, it was the right decision. It was definitely the right thing to do. Absolutely. Um, as 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 we said, um, chronologically. The liquidation um, was was being processed, and uh, it became clear that a new co had to be um, had to be the way forward. Uh, there's no point getting into any kind of technicalities here about oh, same club, old club, uh, are we dead, are we alive? Like we know the truth. That's all that matters. Um, so I don't suppose that there's any talking point there that's worth talking about. But the the one thing that I, I would be interested to hear is. You went from a guy like Craig White, who seemed to be a shifty, shy kind of character, who didn't really particularly enjoy being in front of a camera. Um, a lot of his dealings seemed to be from behind closed doors. A lot came out about what Craig White had actually done to the club. For example, the shares with Arsenal. I don't think any Rangers, most Rangers fans, were even aware that we had a share. Um, we had shares in Arsenal, and then all of a sudden, it comes to light that that was you know, years old shares because we helped Arsenal out and it was something that was really important to us and Craig White sold them. Um, so all his dealings were done in the background and then all of a sudden we've got this guy from Yorkshire who came from nowhere. He's now the leader of the new consortium. He's now your new boss, Andrew, effectively. And he loves the camera. He loves to talk. He's very, you know, explosive. A lot of what he says, there's no substance to it. It did pander to us. We did buy it. From your point of view, working with him, was it such a challenge? Because I suppose at times, being obviously the, one of the senior media men, you must have been thinking to yourself, I need to rein this guy in. Now, one of the things that I do want to come to, because you have had a, a lot of unfair blame regarding this, and I think I seen on Twitter a couple of years ago where you actually said that it had nothing to do with you at all. It was actually Jim Trainer. But that infamous Christmas message was, at, at the time, I probably laughed because I probably did find it funny. But looking back now, it makes me angry that we were dragged so far down beneath what we were actually worth. To yourself, as a media man, seeing that get out, knowing that you couldn't really do much about it, how did that feel? It must have felt, you must have been really, really low. Um, I mean, the Christmas message, I was actually there when it was filmed. Um, you're right in saying I had nothing to do with it. Uh, I did have nothing to do with it in the sense it was not my idea. I did not script anything. Um, I didn't think it was a particularly good idea. But but my role in the media department, the media department and the press office were different things. So the press office were the ones that I had to rein them in a little bit. Um, we were the ones who, you know, if we did a club media interview with Green, the press office were the ones that would then look at that interview and take out the bits that were a bit suspect. Um, so, you know, we almost, as journalists, 
didn't try to rein him in too much. We we tried to kind of get the like the truth out of him. Um, that was a, that was a, that would have been a challenge. Ah uh, yeah, I know. Um, I mean the, yeah. So the Christmas message thing, we got a phone call saying um, Charles Green wants to do something, and it, myself and um, one of the guys from Rangers TV. And then there was no need really for, for me to be there. There was a need for a cameraman to be there, obviously, but there wasn't really any need for me to be there other than I think just someone else from media was there. But yeah, it was filmed in front of the Christmas tree in the foyer in the main stand. Um, and it was thoroughly bizarre. But you know, I mean, Green Green was he was compared at the time to P.T. Barnum. And it was a pretty good comparison, I thought, because uh, he was a bit of a showman and loved the attention. Um, and was was seduced by the reaction that a consortium coming in and taking control of Rangers and Rangers, and I say this in inverted commas, getting better because that's what we thought was happening at the time. Uh, it was seduced by the reaction to that, and Green thought that everybody loved him, and they, it, it wasn't that they just loved that Rangers were seemingly in the way back. And Green eternally wanted people to love him the way they loved Ali. Yeah, and that's that's abundantly clear. There was a there was a clash there, a, a clash of popularity really, because yeah. Green's nose was out of joint with the popularity that Ali had, which is just ridiculous when you think about it. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you're trying to compete with the club's record goal scorer and you know one of the most decorated players in the club's history, and you know just the personality that Ali is as well, and you know he's gone on to be assistant manager at the club and and manage the club as well, and you know everything else, you know, and you've got some guy from Yorkshire who people didn't know a few months ago, and he thinks that that he's going to overtake McCoy. Of course he's not, uh, but he he came in and 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 I think he just he thought that adulation was for him. And it wasn't, it was for the fact that Rangers were making some kind of recovery. And I think we all thought it was a better recovery at the time than it actually was. But, uh, you know, that that was what it was. And he thought it was all about him. I remember I went up to Stornoway with him, up to the uh, to the guys up there, obviously a fantastic supporters club up there. Um, and we went up, so it was Green and Ian Hart went up to do a kind of Q&A session um with, with the guys up there and they had they sold it was a kind of capacity crowd i think of about 120 150 people something like that in the club uh, and we went up there and they looked after us ever so well so we stayed in the they put us up in a and b um so green and, and Hart stayed in in that as well and and myself and a and a cameraman from rangers tv was up to um and you know I, I remember when we were up there and when we were in the car going to to the event and Jim White had texted Green and Green couldn't show us quick enough. Wow. As, as in, look how yeah. popular I am. Yeah. Jim was trying to get hold of me. And, I mean, obviously, obviously, the irony is I got to know Jim very well at Sky uh, and and consider him to be a, a good friend. Uh, now, um, when, when is then at that point, I, I didn't know him at all. Um, but Green, I mean, obviously Jim got slaughtered for the the bedside, uh, <laughs> um, which, in all honesty, from a TV point of view, it was great television. Ah, it was. Honestly, as ridiculous as it was, it was good television. So, uh, and it was a great interview to get, um, because from a from an external media point of view, you know, if you're you're getting, 
the, the man who uh, had come in and done what he'd done at Rangers in a hospital bed talking about it. Uh, you he's know still I mean? in the gown. <laughs> yeah, he's still in the gown and looking a bit poorly and feeling sorry for himself. You know, that's a, that's a pretty decent interview to be getting. Um, you know, but, but Green just was desperate to be the man. Um, I mean, in terms of my dealings with him, there were a couple of times where um, he appeared to want to sack me. Um, one of them was the day that Annan won 2-1 at Rangers, uh, against Rangers at Ibrooks. Um I was on co-commentary for Rangers TV that day, and Tom Miller was commentating. And Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Uh, and that week, um, Green had been in the paper saying it was the, fu- the worst ever Rangers side. Yeah, remember it well. So when Annan scored what ended up being the winner, um, I, I might be wrong with this, I think they went 2-0 two, two up and then Rangers pulled one back. Um, but they, they scored to go yeah, to get their second goal anyway. And uh, and in the co-commentary, I said something along the lines of, um, in a week where, and obviously I, I was always very, and I've been like this on Twitter throughout, and um, I was always conscious of this at the club as well, is that um, I always had to strike the right tone um, and make sure that what I said was relatively balanced and diplomatic. And I've never been one to just go in two feet first. Like It might seem like it sometimes to people, but when I say something that's a bit stronger, trust me, I have thought about it first and the possible impact that it might have or whatever. So I was trying to be very much diplomatic when Rangers were 2-0 down to Annan. Um, and I said, I think pretty much word for word, in a week where Charles Green has said that this is the worst Rangers side in history, uh, that is not for us to necessarily discuss just now, but certainly Rangers aren't doing themselves any favours today. So I said that in co-commentary. I think at the time that was fair comment. Mm-hmm. And after the game, Jim Trainer came to me and said, uh, what did you say about Green? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, um, somebody asked you up to him and said that you were slagging him off on Rangers TV. And I said, no, no, I wasn't at all. And obviously Jim didn't know what had been said. Jim's just asking the question because Jim, uh, like the rest of us, had been watching the game. Uh, he hadn't been watching Rangers TV. He was at iBooks. So um, I said to him, no, no. And I, I told him what I said and he said, right, fine. Um, can you can you get, um, can the, the guys in the office get the audio so, so that he can hear it? Um, because he's basically wanting you out if if, if you've been sla- slagging him off on Rangers TV. Uh, so I went back, listened to it myself, transcribed it word for word, and the audio file was sent to him and nothing else was said about it other than I think Jim came back to me and said, listen, don't worry about it, it's fine. Um, one thing I would say about Jim, by the way, um, I'm not going to any great depth on him, but um, I, I spoke to a friend of mine who works at the Daily Record who, when Jim was appointed, and he said to me then, said, if you work hard for Jim and you don't take um, don't take the mickey, I'm not sure what your policy is in swearing, so I won't say oh, what no, that. You, you can say piss. Okay. Can say no, piss. He said, don't take the piss. Uh, he said, if you don't take the piss, he'll look after you. But if you do take the piss, he'll come down on you like a ton of bricks. And that was very much how I found Jim to be. Um, I mean, Jim, um, who I think, uh, by, I think by that point, Jim... I could be wrong, maybe Jim was still working at Rangers. But when my dad died, Jim appeared at my dad's funeral. Um, wow. Which, which wow, that know, must have meant a lot. 
Well, well, it did. You know, I mean, it, it genuinely did. And and Jim, with me personally, I feel I worked hard for him, and I feel that he looked after me. Uh, I I got out of that what I was told to expect from it. So um, my, my own dealings with Jim, I I, I feel Jim probably uh, over the course of time um, has probably had a bit of a raw deal with some of the things that have been said about him. Um, he's not somebody that will agree with everyone, and and certainly people will not all always agree with him. But um, he. Um, you know, it, it was maybe just his role perhaps wasn't quite right at Rangers um, in terms of he was never a PR guy. Um, but, you know, um, he certainly um, had some decent ideas. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that probably. Uh, but yeah, so Jim had, had come to me with the green thing. Uh, there was another time as well where I think when Rangers had lost to Forfar in the League Cup. Yeah. Um, I can't remember exactly what the row was at the time, but uh, the, the, Ali and Green were kind of increasingly at odds with each other in, in the press and Green had said something before the game. I, th- I think it was I, th- I think it was along the lines of that again, that yeah. before the Fawther game, he, he'd actually come out and said, look, this Rangers team or the worst Rangers team, uh, I, I think I think he reiterated and doubled down and said, yeah. I stand by my comments, this is the worst Rangers team in the history yeah. of Rangers and um, the only way is up basically and yeah. I believe Ali's retort to that was another great pre-match um, message by Charles Green and that's yeah. what was a wee back. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly what it was. So um, I, um, yeah, so I think Ali basically alluded to along the lines of maybe Charles should just focus on his own job and let me go on with mine. Yeah. Um, so Ali said this to the, the written press after the game, but also we'd done our, our kind of standard Rangers TV uh, post-match with him as well. And and uh, I, I'd typed up the quotes before I left Station Park. And um, <laughs> I remember getting a phone call from Jim saying, you need to get that off the website now. If Green sees that, both you and I will get sacked. So I remember having to pull over in the Tesco car park in Forfar and loading up the laptop as quickly as I could and getting the uh, <laughs> the software fired up to. See, but this is incredible to me because at this at this point at this point in time, Charles Gaines already been ousted from the position he was in. It just shows you that although he didn't have the title of CEO, I think he came back as consultant and he, he bragged to everyone that he was only on twenty grand a year as a consultant. It just shows how much say he had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, his guys were all there, weren't they? So, um, yeah, although he wasn't there, he he still was there. So, yeah, um, yeah it was uh, it was a strange time. It really was a strange time. And Green was, uh, was a, um, yeah, I'd love to know what he's up to just now. Uh, you know, if he, if he sort of takes some time to stop counting his money for two minutes, I would, I would love to know what else he's up to. Uh, because he, you know, the irony in all of this is he probably got a lot of what he wanted out of the Rangers situation. Um, uh, there was so much bravado with him and so much, um, you know, so much promise and uh, ultimately empty promises on uh, in, in many occasions. Um, he was, uh, yeah, I, I'm very glad that um, the, the people that were running the club then were obviously then ousted in, in early 2015 and, and and the strides that the club has made since then have been uh, huge. Obviously, still a bit of work to do, but you know the the, the latest financial figures when they came out um, were, were pretty promising, and that's before you threw in four and a half million 
for Stephen Gerrard and twelve million initially for Nathan Patterson. So um, obviously Stuart Robertson was was speaking this week and um, said that the, the club is going to be profitable, which you know it's a while since we've, since we've been able to say that. And, and obviously the hope for the club now is that it can go forward and 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 win the league. And even if it doesn't win the league and, and does not get automatic qualification, clearly it's going to be harder to go through the qualifiers, but there's still the opportunity to do it through the qualifiers as well. So if the league is not won this season, it's still imperative that, that Rangers get uh, that, uh, that, that money. As much for keeping pace with Celtic, because obviously they'll have a massive cash injection if, if they're straight in and, and, and Rangers have to then find a way in through the qualifiers, um, but also for the, the financial recovery and the health of the club, um, you know, if Rangers can get that kind of money coming into them as well, then suddenly Rangers are, are actually looking pretty healthy financially, which uh, obviously that would be the first time in a very long time as well. Absolutely. Um, there's only really two things that I want to ask you uh, to round off. Um, it's been quite a, a an open, honest conversation that I've had with you, and there's been some serious, serious stuff um, discussed, and I really, really appreciate your honesty and your integrity regarding that and, and your openness, obviously discussing your, your, your dad's illness and the effect that had on you. But um, I'm, I'm sorry I have to do this, but I have to ask because it's one of the things that you're most well known for. Can you talk me through what actually happened that day when you were on the pitch interviewing Ali and you just, you, you just, um, the, the computer just shut down? <laughs> <laughs> do you know, I, I thought this might come up. Um, yeah, do you know, I, I mean, so it was... Um, <laughs> It was obviously a trophy day uh, in the third division campaign uh, for 50,000 at Ibrooks uh, for the, the game against Berwick Rangers, 1-1-0. N- not the most spectacular game, but uh, the, the trophy being presented afterwards. And, you know, it, it was what it was. It was the third division trophy. I think people appreciated that. But nevertheless, you know, step one uh, complete and on to the next one. Um, so... I was asked at some point in the, the week leading up to the game if, if I could interview Ali on the pitch after the final whistle. That must have been daunting. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd never done anything like that before. I'd, I'd, uh, I think by that point, so that would be 2013. Um, so actually, a few weeks later, I hosted the NARSA convention in San Francisco, um, which was absolute child play, uh, child's play by comparison because it was a crowd of 500 rather than 50,000. So... Um, but yeah, I, I hadn't done an awful lot of speaking in front of big crowds before. Um, actually, I wasn't that nervous, to be honest, but I, I did have just a bit of a brain freeze. Um, and I had a, I had a couple of questions and said, Ali, I've got two questions for you. And it's sort of quite a confident start. And then the first question and, and asked the question. And then the second one, I just, I, I, think, I, I think I said, and second of all, and then I had no, and I think I, I, once I said the first, or as I was saying the first question, I think at that point I realised I couldn't remember. My short term memory at times is horrific. Um, I, I already like at the start of this. I suppose what, what wouldn't have helped was yeah, yeah, well, yeah. So my friends have have had a lot of mileage out of that as well as you can understand, I'm sure. But um, yeah, the uh, I, I said to you, sort of quite near the start of, of this uh, chat that I asked you to repeat a question because I couldn't remember what it was. And and generally speaking, my, my short-term memory is, is not very good at times, um, like to the point I've, I've had to try to work on it over the years because uh, to try to make it a bit better. Uh, so, yeah, as soon as I started asking that first question, the second one just went and I had no idea what it was. So 
I think I mean I've watched it back not often, but I have watched it back, and I think the silence between me finishing speaking and Ali jumping in is about four seconds, but it felt like a lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> it, felt, it felt like a solid minute at least. Um, and then eventually Ali obviously realizes that I've just forgotten. Um, it was funny because I think some people thought that my mic had just died because. I did just stop talking very suddenly. <laughs> so I think and I, I was I, I tried to kind of go with that one a little bit that oh yeah, it's the microphone that's gone. Um but yeah, and then actually uh, what I don't think I've ever had any credit for at all is I remembered what the question was about two questions later. And I <laughs> See, I, thought, I, I honestly don't even remember yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Nobody talks about that bit where I saved it, but uh, you know, uh, so um I I'd, so I think two questions later I did say to him, oh, and what I was going to say to you at the start was this. Um, and the rest of the interview was fine, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ali's son uh, in, in his dad's arms shouting weirdo every so often. <laughs> uh, I, I, to be fair, I wasn't conscious of that at all at the time, which was probably a good thing. Um, but yeah, um, it, it's been brought up once or twice since then, it's, it's fair to say. No, it was, it was absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, the only thing I can really ask um, now is, do you have all... Do you ever see yourself coming back to the club in any capacity? I know you still do some sort of kind of subcontract work, like with a program and stuff like that. But in terms of a full term, uh, sorry, a full time role, is that something that you can see happening, or is it a case of never say never? Certainly, never say never. Uh, could I see it happening? I mean, I don't know. You, you know, um, last year Alice Headworth left, and um, there there was no replacement there. But then since then, there has been a bit of recruitment, but it's been kind of sort of rolls further down the chain, I think, a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, it's strange because I said earlier that I'd never really considered the prospect of, of working for Rangers. And I've also said about how I was I was glad to be away when, when I left the club. Um, but, you know, if the opportunity was to come up and it was right for me, then, yeah, of course I would. I mean, I, I think... There's probably not many Rangers fans who would say no <laughs> to to the prospect of, of of working for the club, um. But but I speak as one that has worked for the club previously, and and I know what it's like. And you know when it's good, it's it's unbelievably good. As I, I touched on before, you know Barcelona and Monte Carlo. I mean the night out with Dado Perso is a whole other story again. <laughs> uh, so um and you know things like I mean I think in the the year that Rangers were in the third division, I actually and and I I would hazard a guess that I'm about the only journalist in the world that can claim this. Uh, I, I was invited on the, the players' Christmas night out, um, which I think any club media journalist being invited to that club's first team night out at Christmas, I, I don't think there'll be anybody anywhere else in the world. Were, were you there for the infamous Ali karaoke after the Ramsden Cup final? I wasn't, no, I was working. Uh, so, um, no, the Christmas night out, um, I, I got on very well with Lee McCulloch and Lee's only a couple of years older than me. So I think because the squad was quite a young squad, but, but for like Lee, Lee Wallace, Kevin Kyle, um, I don't know if there are any others who were in. So what? That would have been 2012. So I would have been 30 at that point. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's anybody else in their 30s apart from those guys and me. So I think Lee, had, as much as anything, I think he'd ask me along for the sake of having somebody a bit closer to his age there. Uh, so, uh, you know, but I mean, I've had all these kind of great experiences, like money can't buy experiences, um, made some great friends. And, you know, there's still an awful lot of uh, people who have played for the club 
um, you know, one or two who are still playing for the club or back playing for the club, like Stephen Davis, uh, who I, I'm in contact with from time to time, or if I see them, we'll have a chat, or you know, occasionally they'll they'll pop they'll pop up at Sky Sports News because they're on as a guest or whatever, um, and you know, and it's really nice to to be able to chat to to all these guys, having built a relationship with them, and um, I, I, the key for me to do my job when you're dealing with people like that it has always been they are people just like you. Um, you know, obviously they have the adulation and people idolising them and, you know, if they score big goals and everything that comes with that, you know, I get all of that. But ultimately they are people just like you who have feelings just like you, who have problems just like you. And I've always tried, um, and, and it was it was weird because like I kind of probably didn't have this mindset before I went to Rangers, but then when I went to Rangers, I kind of adopted this. I've always tried to speak to people on a human level and not at a level where you're being a fanboy, if you like. Uh, you know, like, actually just talk to them like they're a human being because they are a human being. Yeah, they can play football, but can they can they make the Mediterranean tomato risotto that I'm really good at? Probably not. <laughs> It's, you know, we've all got our talents and theirs happens to be they're able to kick a ball and it happens to be that you get paid quite a lot of money for that. Um, it doesn't make you a great person. And I'm very much about people being good people as well. So, uh, you know, I've had all these experiences over the years. If there was a chance to have that kind of thing again, yeah, of course, I'd be interested in hearing about that possibility. Um, what I would say is that I've been in London for nearly seven years now. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, I, working at Sky recently, for the last uh, three months or so, I've been heading up a training program at Sky uh, for like basically there's been a bit of restructuring at Sky. And and one thing that is needed to be addressed is um, the sport bulletins on Sky News. Uh, th that's something that I, that I work quite regularly on. And just with the, the kind of shuffling about of, of staff and some people leaving and, and what have you, um, it, it's left a bit of a, a gap there where... Um, responsibility for producing that has now been passed on to Sky Sports News producers or, or production staff. Uh, so I've been leading a training programme for three months where um, it's been me training every day in the room, uh, which has been, you know, that's management type stuff and it's been really enjoyable and I, I've, I've taken a lot of um, a lot of things from it, real positives and, uh, you know, I've developed myself in certain respects with that. So I'm getting opportunities at, at Sky and although I remain freelance, um, you know, I, I would hope that I'm fairly well thought of. It, it feels like that. Um, so it would take something really attractive for me to step away from that. Uh, but then by the same token, my, my partner lives up in uh, in Glasgow. Um, she's got a season ticket in the Govan Rear. So um, I don't think she's uh, going to be massively in the mood to give that up to, <laughs> to, to, to move to London for years and years and years. So I wouldn't be totally surprised if um, I had to come back up to Glasgow at some point anyway for personal reasons. But, you know... Um, yeah, never say never is probably the best way to describe it. Uh, clearly, if, if something came up, but I'd be interested in it. But by the same token, um, it's very rare that you get to pick what jobs you go into. And the, the job at, at Rangers um, is as exciting for a Rangers supporting journalist to join the, the media team as it would be for a Rangers fan to play for the first team. So, um, you know, that, that that doesn't come up straight away. So if it ever was to come up in the future, yeah, I'd absolutely be interested, of course, um, because I had some, some great times there. But but for the moment, really, really happy where I am. Uh, really enjoying living in London. It's a great place. And I get up and down to Glasgow quite often. 
so, you know, I, I'm getting a bit of everything. Uh, I've even made it to a few games this season as well, mainly Europa League. But, um, you know, it, I'm enjoying where I am at the moment. So let's see what happens. No, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I, um, I appreciate your time, Andrew. I really do. I appreciate your honesty. Um, appreciate the depth of uh, detail you went into uh, regarding the questions asked. Um, at the start, obviously, offline, we discussed that if there's anything that's not quite, um, that you're not quite comfortable with answering, that that, that would be fine. But I, I can honestly say to everyone who listens to this, you've answered every single question that I've put to you without any hesitation, which is, uh, as I said, I just appreciate that so much. And you've done it with such grace and, and, and integrity. And as you say, it's a nice way to bookend it, but you say you speak to people on a human level. You've certainly done that with myself, uh, which, which again, I, I can't thank you enough for. Not a problem at all. Really enjoyed it. Uh, as have I. Um, so thank you, Andrew. Also, thank you to producer Andrew, um, who is working away in the background as well. Um, and I'm hoping, well, I'm not hoping. I know everyone who will listen to this podcast will absolutely enjoy it. Um, so thanks again, Andrew. Thank you very much. And thank you to all who listened.